welcome to episode 89 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. <laughs> James, it's hot as fuck outside. <laughs> I'm so happy to be going on vacation soon to get out of this heat. Where are you going? Colorado. That is much cooler. Oh my God, it's going to be so nice. Yeah, it's sweltering. But that's a good temperature to go inside and watch movies during. Yeah, true. Which I feel like I've been doing a lot of lately. Have you been you been going to the theaters? Yeah, I've actually been making the trek out to Zeitgeist to watch these like artsy fartsy movies. They, they have this series called Wildfire right now that's like queer cinema. Have you seen anything good? Yeah, I, I saw this documentary on Cassandra Exotico, who's like this drag queen wrestler from Mexico, mm. uh, who's really great. Okay, uh, and saw this. Um, other documentary about like a drag queen competition in the 60s called The Queen, uh, which feels like an early precursor to like Paris is Burning and RuPaul's mm. Drag Race. And I had never even really heard of it before, like a year ago. Now it's like restored and on the big screen, which is really great. But I've also been watching a lot of trash in my living room as well, uh, <laughs> which is more of the kind of stuff we're going to talk about today. Because the topic of this episode is early Larry Cohen movies. Yeah. But before we get into that, what have you been watching uh, in this sweltering heat? Recently... I've just been getting a lot of movies from the library, honestly. I haven't made it out to the theaters because I no longer have a car. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's new. So my car got towed in the Smoothie King parking lot, Ugh. and it was so expensive. I was just like, you know what? Just keep the car. You know what? First of all, that is like <laughs> one of the worst parking lots. It's so tiny and cramped. I can't even imagine getting a tow truck back well, there. Well, the parking out in front of Yummy Yummy and that whole yeah. area, there's nothing. Oh, it's trash. There's nowhere to park. Yeah, I walk from blocks away. Well, it sucked because like, it was during SummerSlam. So I was like a little drunk. I was like, oh, I want some Chinese food, but I don't want to walk over there. I'm going to drive. Always a bad idea. And then I was like, oh, no parking on front. I guess I'll just go to Smoothie King because I have my food ready. And within three minutes, my shit got towed. Oh, wait. So there wasn't even a problem with the car. It was just the towing because you were illegally parked. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Because I was, I didn't get a smoothie. I was trying to get my Chinese food next door and they have signs all over like, don't park here. You'll get towed. They were hunting for you. Yeah, he must have been just waiting, like with a binoculars across the street or something, looking for wrestling fans who are in like desperate <laughs> Chinese food situations. And and again, like the car has so many issues that I was already thinking about getting rid of it. So I was like, all right, well, this is a sign. Get rid of the car. So anyway, haven't had a car. Pretty much had to hunker down here at home for the last week. So mostly been getting stuff from the library. I guess of note, uh, I did watch Lur. Oh, yeah, the Polish mermaid right. musical. Which you had recommended, I think that was on your top 10 list, what, like a, two, two, years two years ago? ago yeah. And um, it kind of fell off my radar, and then I saw it. I was like, yes, God check that out. I loved it. I thought it was so cool. There's nothing like it. It's so weird, and the music is so good, and visually, it's like kind of gross and glossy and... It really took me off guard. Like, I hadn't quite seen anything that was hitting those notes. Yeah, it's kind of like a retelling of The Little Mermaid, like the Hans Christian Andersen story. But yeah, like you said, like that disco soundtrack they have pulsing through it. And and also the mermaids are much more grotesque. Yeah, it's almost like a Guillermo del Toro version of like a mermaid body. It's not necessarily sexy. Yeah, and just, you know, the whole showbiz side of it, how they're exploited... And again, like the musical numbers were so good. Like I really thought it was like a unique picture. Like I will not forget that movie. I was lucky to catch that at the broad, uh, like the one week it played there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I bought the Blu-ray. I've been watching it a bunch of times just because, yeah, there really is nothing else like it. Like it's a very special movie. I think I like it more and more in retrospect too, just because it's feeling rarer to see stuff like that on the big screen right now. And just like stuff I had never seen before. And right. You, you know, you watch so many movies, you feel like you've kind of seen it all. And then you see something like that and you're like, Oh wow. Someone still has a fresh voice. Yeah. You know? So I, I really, I love lure. Another thing I got from the library was this movie clown. It's this Danish comedy from, I think probably about six or seven years ago. It's this, um, comedy duo in Denmark that I guess are pretty popular. And this is kind of the movie version of their shtick. So I'm expecting a lot of dark, morbid humor. It's really dark, sexual, (laughs) morbid humor. And this isn't going to sound funny, but there are jokes about like pedophilia, about 
rape, about child porn, yet it somehow pulls it off and it's earnest and it's very funny and it's shot almost like The Office or one of these kind of sitcoms. Like a mockumentary kind of? Or it just, it's shot in a way that feels real, but these situations are so absurd and it's just these grown men behaving like children and the way they rationalize some of their, their behavior is just ridiculous and over the top. And it's really, really funny. And I think I'm really drawn to like that style of humor, kind of gallows humor that seems to come from that part of the world. Like a screwball version of like Lars von Trier's stick. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. That's a way to put it. But yeah, that, that was really, really fun. And a third movie I wanted to touch on that I really hated. And then (laughs) I read a review that you wrote literally the next day (laughs) of daddy issues, which I did not know what to make of this movie. I, I don't know. A part of me like really despised it and thought it was just vapid and had nothing to say. But then part of me kind of liked the glossy music video look of it. And I just think I really hate it. Honestly, I, I don't know what to make of this movie. I like it, but barely. And I think like 90% of what I like about it is the costume and production design. There's a lot of really beautiful pastels and glitter Mm. makeup. And all these kids are like on social media all the time in these like very over-decorated bedrooms. It looks like the front of like a trapper keeper, but like as an entire room. It kind of reminds me of, we've talked about Cam a lot. And as that sort of aesthetic there's even like a baby blue like sex dungeon um because one of the characters is into this like age regression like sugar daddy kink well and the sugar daddy thing i think is what really threw me off is because i actually thought the sugar daddy or the daddy character was the most interesting and then towards the end of the movie just his character flips to where it doesn't make any sense and then i'm like i don't know what's going on i can't root for anyone i don't care about anyone maybe that's the point I think we're too old for it. I think it is designed for Generation Z in particular. And it has a lot of this like very online speak about like queer theory. And Mm -hmm. like, just because I'm a woman sleeping with another woman doesn't make me this. I'm not like, it's all about like identifiers and like stuff like that. But it's also very melodramatic. And what I found interesting about it myself was that it feels like a lifetime movie for people under 20 which usually Lifetime movies, if you watch them now, they're all browbeating people for looking at their phones all the time. Yeah. So it's like a glimpse of the future, like an alternate dimension where like Gen Z has their own horny ass Lifetime movies. Because there is like strap on sex in the movie and like choking and like age regression stuff. So it does get like mildly kinky, but most of it is this like Lifetime level, like Red Shoe Diaries or like when we were kids, they had uh, MTV Undressed. Mm -hmm. Like it's that version of like melodrama. Well, I think that's why I've been thinking about it is because I don't know. I have a pretty open mind. Every once in a while, though, I find a movie where it's like this is not for me, and I can't quite parse out where this fits. You know? Yeah. So I just thought it was like an interesting movie. It's like hearing dubstep for the first time. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what is that? And in a way, for? it reminded me of the <laughs> the criticism that Spring Breakers got, which I rewatched that recently and loved it. But you know, that got criticism. Oh, it's just a long music video and it has no depth to it. And I thought that movie was great because I thought it actually was trying to say something by having a lack of depth. Whereas this movie really felt vapid, but maybe I'm just too old. It's not for me. I think, yeah, I think it's a very specific version of like horned up melodrama trash, but for a younger generation than us, which I found interesting. I wouldn't call it good. Um, I, I think I gave it like a three-star review just as like a weird... Yeah, I think you were a little more kind yeah, than t- I was. Okay, but... The look of it is nice. Like, I like looking at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, the make the DIY, like, makeup and, like, fashion design, and it's really cute. Yeah. The artwork that the main character does is horrible. Awful. Yeah, it's, it's so... <laughs> and then when they put on the t-shirt, it's even worse. It's yeah, so she's, bad. like, going to um, art school in Italy is, like, her dream in life, and she makes this, like, deviant art level, like, web comics, and they're really bad. They're bad. So yeah. it's kind of hard to believe in her dream uh, the way the movie <laughs> wants you to, but I don't know. I thought it was an interesting movie. I could see totally. the director making better stuff later, maybe. Yeah. Well, so, anyway, so that's kind of what I've been watching. What about yourself? Besides the 
stuff you mentioned earlier. Yeah, the wildfire series at Zeitgeist has been cool. But at my house, I've been investigating this thing that I've been thinking about for a while. Mostly because Hobbs and Shaw is in the theater right now. And Jason Statham is like getting pushed really hard in it. I saw that movie and I didn't like it. I heard the action like set pieces were pretty outrageous yeah. and fun. I mean, the problem with the, the uh, Hobbs and Shaw for me is like it's winking and joking when like what's fun about Fast and Furious is it has those over the top action scenes, but it's played so sincerely and with all this like, again, melodramatic speeches about family and like heart. Mm-hmm. So when the movie actually like jokes along, it's like, isn't this funny that we're doing this goofy action movie? It kind of ruins the I see. magic. But because of that, I've been thinking a lot about Jason Statham and how I didn't know who he is. Like, until he was in Fast and Furious and the Melissa McCarthy movie Spy, which I think is very underseen. Was he, he was in Expendables. Yeah, too, I don't right? remember him in that. I guess it was like a side role, but yeah. But until he was spoofing himself in those movies, I didn't really pay attention to him. So I had no idea who he was or like what makes him special or what he was even really spoofing. Like he's like this tough guy. He came up in, I think the guy Ritchie movies like snatch like a million years ago. Yeah. I think that was his introduction. And then I think right after crank came out and that's kind of what catapulted him. Yeah. So I've been watching a bunch of those, like the early two thousands movies. I watched crank, which I really like the hyperkinetic I lo- I uh, love cinematography Craig. and like the over the top premise is really great and it fits really well into this like Larry Cohen um, episode we're having because the premise is so over the top. It's mm. like it's basically like speed uh, except instead of the bus can't slow down, this guy's heart can't slow down or he'll die. Uh, so he keeps taking methamphetamines and having sex in public. Yeah, I mean and- it, it's a gimmick, but it's a really strong gimmick. Yeah, the problem is that it's really gross. I like you. Don't he, like he the, plays such an asshole, and he, oh, you're supposed you to celebrate that. him for it. I, I see what you mean. Yeah. Like he like basically rapes his girlfriend in public, and you're supposed to like cheer him on for being like a, a tough guy hero. I do remember that scene. Yeah, yeah, that probably has an not age fun to well. watch. A bunch of stuff has an age well in it, and I think maybe we should talk about this more in its own episode too. Mm-hmm. But it was really fun to watch, even though it was like I think it's a product of its time for sure. Too. Yeah. Um, I watched The Transporter from around that time, which I feel like was probably his like flagship series. Like, I haven't an action seen star. that one, actually. Also, like a product of its time. It feels like a kind of action movie we don't see anymore. So maybe that would be fun to watch, too. Mm-hmm. And I watched this one that Larry Cohen wrote uh, late in his own career called Cellular. Cellular, yeah. Jason Statham is a bad guy in this one. And... He has, I believe, Kim Basinger locked up in an attic. Uh-huh. And she makes this phone call out to Chris Evans on an early Nokia brick telephone. And Chris Evans can't let the cell phone call drop or Kim Basinger will die. Another, like, crank-like premise. And he goes around the city, like, trying to save the day without dropping this call. It is bad, but it's the kind of, like, over-the-top, ludicrous, fun, bad that I want out of like Larry Cohen movies. Well, and it's funny that he went from like directing to later in his career going just to screenwriting, but he wrote, I know he did phone booth and cellular. I don't, he was just like obviously attached to like technology. He might've did that one where Ryan Reynolds is in a box with the phone too. Maybe it Even sounds if he like his kind of thing. It sounds yeah. like his stick. Right. Also it helped me solidify who Jason Statham is. Like I get it now. He's an asshole. In every one of these movies, he's just like an asshole you instantly hate. He's like such a dick. Sometimes it works better than others. Like when you're supposed to celebrate him, Mm. you're like, I don't, this is like this macho thing I can't get into. But when he's like villainized, like when he was first introduced in Fast and Furious, it's really compelling. It's like, oh yeah, this guy's a dick and I want to see him dead. But he's like an indestructible, indestructible monster. Right. And he looks like a penis. Uh, and then in Hobbs and Shaw, when it's him and the rock bickering and like joking about how they don't have like, Oh, you don't have a dick. Ha ha ha. Like that's the joke. That's not funny or cute. So I don't know. His assholeism can be weaponized correctly and incorrectly. So they should play to his strengths. Yeah. Make him a dick. Whether or not you're supposed to like him. That's fine. Just make sure that it's clear that he is a dick. Um, and it works out pretty well. So I don't know. I think I could do a whole episode talking about Jason. I think Jason. I think we should because yeah. I'm a huge fan of the Crank series. Yeah, we the, should talk about The sequel about those. too is really fun. I haven't seen I that, so maybe that'd be a good place to start. Yeah. Well, today, like I said several times, more Larry Cohen. Yes. Who just died this year? 
Yeah. And I don't think I really paid much attention to him before this year. I think I got into him very soon after he died, but I wasn't aware that he had just passed away. My introduction was Bone, which we're going to talk about yeah. today. Pretty much after I saw Bone, I was like, whoa, I need to see more of what this guy has to say. And it's the exact kind of stuff we should be watching all the time anyway. And it's kind of just wild that we've delayed it this long. But it's going to be a fun episode to talk about this stuff, I think. Definitely. It's exactly in our wheelhouse. Yes. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. If this had been a regular studio picture... I couldn't have done that. You would have had to get approval from the front office. You would have had to write the scene. You would have had to send it. It would have to be budgeted. Yeah. And 55 people would be involved in the decision-making <laughs> process. And I was down there the next day shooting what I wanted to shoot, and it worked out great. And now it's time for our movie of the minute. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And it was James's turn to pick this time. What did you make me watch? So I made you watch Bone, which was my introduction to Larry Cohen. And I believe his first job as director. Yeah. What I find really interesting about this is watching some of his later films. He tends to always come back to a social satire of some sort, but he usually wraps it up in genre trappings of like a police procedural or something like that. This is the only movie I found from him where it is straight up social satire. It's disguised in its advertising as like a black exploitation piece, I think. Yeah, I I think it had three different titles. One was Dial Rat for Terror, which is a great title for not this movie, for like a different movie. Yeah, and there was another one too. A uh, Bad Day in Beverly Hills was one. Yeah. And probably several others. They used to market them differently on different drive-in circuits, uh, kind of like how wrestling used to be in like different territories. Well, I watched a trailer that... Definitely played more into the black exploitation, like, oh, a black man is coming in and raping white women sort of thing. And I think the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie play into that trope enough to hook the audience if that's what they're looking for. Obviously, what is delivered is way different than that, though. It's presenting itself in that context to hook an audience, and then it delivers something much weirder, maybe. Yeah, or much has much more depth, I would say, than just a typical... While still like playing into that, I, I think that's what makes this movie really murky. It made me very uncomfortable watching I it. I was afraid to watch this when you brought it up. I'm like, I'm not going to enjoy this. This is going to be like really uncomfortable. And I mean, once you push through, you realize it's actually like really intellectual. Very much so. Uh, it feels like a stage play, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or something like that, mm-hmm. where it's cerebral, I guess. Where, like, uh, most of his movies have, like, social commentary, but it's, like you said, buried under, like, genre tropes. Yeah. Uh, in this, it's, like, just commentary, almost, like, surreally expressed in, like, this sort of, like, feverish way. And just the basic plot is there's this very seemingly wealthy couple in Beverly Hills. I think their names are Bill and Bernadette. Bill's uh, used car salesman. Bernadette's sort of the trophy, trophy wife. And um, they find a rat in their pool and they go to call the pool people. And as soon as they do, this large, very charismatic black man who looks like he escaped from prison. Played by Yafit Kodo. Seriously, like his performance in this is fucking riveting. Oh, it's great. It's so good. And it has this like tense energy and it's like palpable how uncomfortable he makes him feel. He basically shows up and initially they think he's there to fix the pool. And within seconds, they realize like, oh, this is not someone here to help us. And he basically kidnaps them and tells the husband like, hey, go get money from your account. If you don't show back up in like an hour, I'm going to rape your wife. So that's pretty much the plot you have to see how like reading that a paper i was like i'm gonna hate this movie yeah and just saying it sounds sort of dirty irredeemable is what it sounds like it's like how do you dig yourself out of that hole because it does not sound watchable but it's so compelling and so i guess (laughs) so i guess you need to get into why this movie works like the first like 20 30 minutes feels really exploitative and like nasty and I think once you get through that, there's a lot of 
depth and a lot of commentary on late 60s, early 70s culture that I think is really on point and still kind of what we're dealing with now. Still, like a lot of these issues haven't gone away. Racism, obviously. Also, like just the structure of like the Western marriage. Like mm-hmm. this like couple hates each other. I mean, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was not just like a uh, throwaway comparison. Like they're pretty similar in the fact that these people just like have this like seething anger in every exchange. And they're supposed to be like this happily married couple. Just like fake wealth. Like these people like portraying a wealth that they don't actually have. That That's a good maybe entry point to what I think the social commentary is, which I really wanted to dive into because I think that is what makes this movie really important and like really thought provoking. And I feel like it's really approaching these issues head on in a way that makes you uncomfortable, which I really like about it. Like sometimes I feel like social commentaries are playing it safe a little bit. And this one feels very dangerous. Maybe the most dangerous I've seen this kind of genre played. I mean, when else could you have made this movie besides the early 70s? It seems like it had to be made then or never. What I was kind of thinking watching it is sort of the post-60s or post-Vietnam like hangover that was sort of happening. So to go back to what you're saying about wealth. So you have this couple where on the outside they seem very wealthy. But then you found out early on that they're actually drowning in debt. And again, like that's still relevant in the sense of like so many people are in credit card debt or you have the housing crisis where people are trying to portray that they're like living this middle class, upperly mobile life when really they're hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And so like that's just one little issue that this movie touches on. Uh, Another one of their lies, just to tie in what you're already talking about, is they pretend their son is like a hero and is doing well. Uh, he is a prisoner from trying to sell dope. Yeah. After the Vietnam War, like like after the war has already ended. Yeah. He's he tries to profit off of the like locals there with like drugs and ends up in prison. Uh, so they just sort of like make up this like better version of his story and lie about it. And yeah, a lot of it is like fake status like that. So Bone thinks he's like invading this house to exploit these people and like take what they have. And he, the more he digs, the more he realizes they have nothing to offer. So there's like layers of commentary. I, I do think race is a huge one, probably the one that would make modern viewers the most uncomfortable. I feel like Bone's character is really hard to kind of figure out. I watched this uh, documentary called King Cohen. Oh, how was that? It's not great as a movie, but like if you want more insight into like Larry Cohen's career, it's interesting because they go through like all the phases of his career and like interview people and show clips. It's a good introduction to him, but it's not a well-made documentary. Like it's not going to blow your mind or anything, but Yafit Koto says like, I still don't know who or what bone is. He's like, he seems like this mystical creature and like not a real human. (laughs) And he just sort of like appears out of the woods in that way. Like there's just something almost like magical about him. And he's there to like expose this like hypocrisy in this like white couple's house. What becomes clear watching the movie through the end is like, he initially is playing into their fears of black men. He's playing into their racism and trying to scare them by embodying the stereotypes that they believe. But I think what's an interesting twist on the character is there's a few scenes where it seems like he's saying that he actually has internalized it. He says, I'm a big black buck doing what's expected of him. Uh, Right. That quote, which, you know, again, like makes your skin (laughs) crawl. But I think that's getting at something that's really interesting about any marginalized group that starts to like, embody or like internalize their own stereotypes and i mean it's not just black america there's so many groups that do that and that's like a hard thing to talk about in a movie and i feel like this one actually tries to approach it honestly but it straddles that line of like being a really thoughtful social commentary and also playing in to those same stereotypes and that's what makes you sell it, movie tickets specifically yeah and that's what makes it feel dangerous like yeah part of what helps is like over time the power balance of what is happening in that house um shifts entirely 
where like it starts off with him, you know, holding this woman ransom saying, I'm going to rape her if you don't come back with money in the next few hours. Uh, And over time she sort of like reveals that she is the one in like this like dominant position in this situation and basically uses him like a sex toy and like pins him to the floor and mounts him. And it seems like for a moment they're going to have this like genuine love connection between Mm -hmm. bone and this housewife. And once he starts to see how ugly her power is and like how like, you know, manipulative and like evil she is like to her core, um, he leaves and she is the last person on the screen spoilers for bone. Uh, and she just starts rattling off these like racial expletives and like comes up with this like false rape story about how he forced her into doing things. So the movie does have more to say than just like, giant black men are scary, which seems like what the first act is setting up. I do think it undercuts that a little bit though, immediately. And that's why I didn't give up on it at mm-hmm. first. I really love this movie. I should probably say like, yeah, I, I do too. No, it's it's... my favorite thing we watched today, but you're talking about the used car salesman aspect, right? Mm-hmm. The first scene of the film is this sort of nightmare where the husband is selling used cars in a commercial. Like it's a television commercial. And as it zooms out, you start to realize that he's in a dump selling like scorched out cars, selling death, like your Honda civic that was towed the other day. (laughs) Uh, And there's like dead people in the cars. Mm -hmm. Uh, It reminded me a lot of that um, dead hooker gag from uh, dirty work. Uh, (laughs) It's the exact same thing. That's immediately like this like absurdist joke on like the American dream and all this stuff. And then you cut to him cleaning his own pool. Uh, Another thing I learned was that that's Larry Cohen's house. Uh, oh, really? And like most of his movies have a scene there because it's just cheaper to film at his own house. But he's uh, skimming the leaves out of his pool as more leaves are blowing in. Uh, so it's this sort of like feudal Sisyphean act that he's just doing because that's mm. what you do. Uh, and, you know, there's a rat in the pool. And when Bone invades their home, quote unquote, he's like giving him a guided tour like a realtor. Right. That That's such a good scene too. like the facade of yeah. the American dream kind of. So even when the movie's playing like this nasty black exploitation piece, it's also this absurd piece of like writing and it feels like it's coming straight from the id. Earlier you said Larry Cohen shifted away from a director later in his life and uh, basically just wrote script. screenwriting. Yeah. He started off that way as well. He just wrote tons and tons of scripts and sold them like crazy. Like he would just sell movies and TV shows like it was nothing. If someone took a project out of his hands and did something he didn't like with it, he would spitefully write like three more movies. Like he's just like always producing. Mm-hmm. His idea for Bone was, I'm going to sink my money into this project where I have total control and no one can change what I put on the page. He was frustrated by the fact that every time he wrote something, he couldn't change it as they were making it and like adjust and make things better. So what he did with Bone is he wrote it in a week straight. And it has that sort of like dreamlike surreal. It does, yeah. What do you call that? Um, stream of consciousness mm-hmm. feeling. And as they were filming, he was writing more and shifting the dialogue and changing it. And because of that, the movie's constantly surprising and surreal and feels like a weird dream. Well, I think all the movies we're going to talk about today have this loose improvisational feel to them that I think is really endearing. It doesn't feel like manufactured you can't really put it in a box. It's just like, it's constantly shifting and yeah, dreamlike. It's obviously coming from one person's brain. And well, and the fact that like all the ones we're talking about today, like he wrote, produced and directed all of them rapidly. Yeah, all of them so very this quickly. is obviously like his vision. It's pretty amazing. Cause I feel like in this one and Q, which we'll talk about later, the dialogue is really clever mm-hmm. and like super well written. And like he did that in a week I don't know that hats off to him and the performances match it in this one, which I think is what makes it one of the better ones we're going to talk about today or my favorite one. Cause the performances are just odd. It reminds me of like early Toby Hooper movies where everyone is like sweaty and just acting weird and like manic, almost like as if everyone's on the same drug, but no one knows what drug it is. Like, mm-hmm. like it's not disclosed to the audience what they're on. There's just one character in this movie that I think is the best plot line. I think subplot which is the woman that the uh, husband gets distracted with at the bank and takes her on as like a mistress. And then she goes on this very long monologue about how she was molested in a movie theater as a kid. And just like the stuff with the racism um, commentary in the beginning, it get, it dangerously veers from like actual erotica to comedy to like deep 
despair and like actually taking her trauma like seriously. And it does so like within sentences. Like she'll yeah. say something that's a joke and then a second later say something that's like really upsetting. And her performance is so committed in reading it like you would see like an off Broadway, you know, avant-garde like stage actor in the seventies. And it's like incredibly compelling stuff. And like one of the best like performances I've seen in a movie in like a long time, which I did not expect out of this film, you know, every performance and every character to me, because again, I feel like you have to put this movie in context of more than anything I've seen in a while, like context matters. And it is the like early seventies, late sixties time period. And it was a huge moment of like social change. And I kind of took like every character in a way was like for me, Larry Cohen making a statement, almost a political statement about where American culture was at at the time. So you obviously, you know, we already talked about bone and where he stands, but then with bill, you have this like rich, white guy that claims, you know, oh, if everyone cared about society the way I did and, like, if anyone gave a damn, you know, that's what's wrong with this world. But you see how emasculated and ineffectual he is and how and insincere, I think, And too. insincere. It's like he's saying, oh, the world should be this way, but then his actions are the complete opposite. He does have one speech where he kind of reveals his true self, though, when he's, like, talking about how he has nothing to do. Right. He's like, he's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess you could um, spend your time having sex, but it's all been done before. Unless you're a pervert, you have to, like <laughs> right. invent new ways to do it, and I just don't have it in me. Yeah. Uh, so he's like, just nothing. He has no reason to exist in this film. Yeah, nowhere to to go. Yeah. And then the Bernadette character, the kind of like this feminist wave is going, and she's kind of tethered to the past, where she is this trophy wife, but she obviously through the manipulation you see with like with bone and that she does kind of have agency. And it's kind of this question of like autonomy versus security sort of thing that's going on with her, which I feel like is really indicative of like the time again, like all this stuff is still going on. It's still stuff we're dealing with. And she still weaponizes her whiteness in like a really nasty way. Like the movie doesn't let her off the hook, which I think is like a lot of criticism that a lot of like white feminists get nowadays right you know it's like you'll use your privilege when it works for you so you have that and then with the character you were describing i think you're was it jenny something like that yeah i don't know if you would agree with this interpretation but to me she was kind of like the the dark side of hippiedom and hedonism where she's really open in this free spirit and kind of doing what she wants but there's like a certain darkness to that and She's like a really an, sad character yeah, yeah and a certain emptiness she has no goal and it's kind of like how the you know the hippies in the 60s during vietnam had this like cause and they're politically active and then it became this like commercialized sort of thing in the 70s 80s night like it's like now when people call themselves hippies what does that even mean it's just like Honestly, an excuse to just like get high and drop out, which is valid. I mean, well, yeah, no, it's valid, <laughs> but but to me, like that's what her character represents. So it's like each character is really like saying something about a different aspects of the culture in really pointed ways and really like profound ways. And like I don't know, that just blew me away that he was able to really solidify like where we were at at this point in time. Yeah, and it feels like a very interesting balance, I think, between where movies were at the time, too. Like, mm-hmm. drive-in, nasty, over-sexualized schlock that was coming out after, like, the Hayes Code being broken. And then also this, like, very cerebral, smart, new Hollywood auteurism that was coming out of, like, these, like, young, you know, young hippies who had taken mm-hmm. over the industry. So yeah, the movie has both of those things in it, which you might not expect if you just read the log line where it just sounds like the first half. Like it just sounds like nastiness. Yeah, but- just weaving like the art house with the B movie. Yeah. Both of those genres are like low budget, which this is, but it's weaving those aesthetics pretty I don't know, brilliantly, I would say. I don't know. Would you think that over his career, it veered more towards a B-movie and there was just like a touch of art house in it? Yeah. Okay, I think this is like more like half and half uh, and it's very interesting for that. Yeah, it's weird to see someone with their directorial debut like hit such 
a high mark. And then I like all the movies where the other two we're going to talk about, but they don't quite reach this level of art. I would say they're just like a different, different thing. And they have touches of that, but this one really, I thought knocked that out of the park. Yeah. It's like entirely unfamiliar where they feel like, you know, good versions of movies we've seen elsewhere. Maybe modern audiences should go back and watch this and, it's a challenging watch. For it will sure. make you squirm. It you made will squirm. me squirm. <laughs> um, I haven't felt this way watching me, but I really appreciate how brave it was. And like it pushed so many buttons and it's funny. And it's again, I keep going back to the word dangerous, but this is like a dangerous film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I absolutely loved it. a way in which plates are usually shot that allow the stop motion guys to be able to do their best. And Larry, of course, ignored all of that stuff. He shot stuff handheld. He didn't lock down anything. He said, well, that's not how it's done. I said, I keep hearing that all the time. Every time I make a movie, no matter where I go, they always tell me that's not the way it's done. But I do it and it works and it saves a lot of money and a lot of time. So we're kind of specifically talking about this like early Larry Cohen phase. So it's kind of hard to narrow down which ones to watch. I think like It's Alive and The Stuff could have fit in this conversation mm. really easily. But I wanted to talk about one that came up earlier this year when we were watching M. Night Shyamalan movies. The Happening, I really liked. And it reminded me a lot of the premise for God Told Me To, which I had never seen, but they, they seemed like spiritual cousins, you know. Uh. And it proved out, I think, I think they're pretty similar in some ways. Maybe God Told Me To goes to more surreal places, which is the Larry Cohen touch. It is from 1976. Uh, This is a little later than Bone. It starts off in an uncomfortable way politically just because of the time that we watched it. Yeah, and the mass shootings going on. I really felt uncomfortable in the beginning because it's so on the nose with like what we're seeing every other day. Yeah. The first few scenes in the movie are people shooting from, like, you know, basically bell towers in New York City uh, at crowds. A thing Larry Cohen really prided himself on was, like, scaring real-life people and capturing their reactions on film and using that for his movies. Not something that would fly now and good. Uh, (laughs) uh, And both of the uh, other movies we're talking about today, there's, like, real-life panic um, he shoots which, you know, now that like shootings like this are more commonplace, I think would be like unforgivable for sure. Anyway, so this policeman who's like super Catholic is trying to get to the heart of these mass shootings that start popping up around New York City. And he finally corners one person who's shooting with a rifle from the top of a building. And he asks him, why are you doing this? And the guy says, God told me to. And then he kills himself. And it becomes a pattern. More and more people start saying the same thing. God told me to do it. Yeah, there's a guy that like stabbing people. There's a guy in a really hard to watch scene, a guy that kills his family. And he he just seems ecstatic. Like he's been touched by the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, you know, God told me to. And there's a scene with a cop played by Andy Kaufman. I thought it was just weird. Also shot without permits and without clearing it with the crowd. Andy Kaufman dresses like a police officer in a real life parade for policemen and pulls out a fake gun. Uh, Holy shit. Really? Yeah. What? I think some of the cops around him are also in costume and like those are the ones that grab him. Uh, But other people also recognized him because he was on taxi at the time. Yeah. It's like, oh, Andy. Hey, Andy. So I guess they were like somewhat in on it. But Uh, yeah. But still. That's fucked up. That's not a good thing (laughs) to do. That's uh, like... Right on the edge of unethical. Oh, it's definitely unethical. I, I, we champion these like directors who turn these like low budget productions into these like bigger things. Yeah, like it's really amazing when someone can turn like nothing into like a huge spectacle, and that's one way to do it. But you know, it's basically like yelling fire in a crowded theater. Yeah. Like people will get hurt and traumatized for your dumb movie. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, very uh, uncomfortable beginning of the film and the more the guy digs into the thing i have to spoil this because otherwise we couldn't really talk about it yeah Uh, he starts to discover that it's not actually god it's this like angelic space alien with a vagina in his side and because this man is super catholic 
that starts to question his faith in the real God. Mm-hmm. And then he starts to question who he is because he has these circumstances around his birth and his inner life that are similar to this um, vagina Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to call Who has person. this like cabal of people. Like a and cult. He, yeah, and he just informs them when these killings are going to happen. And he basically has the ability to enact his will onto people to do what he wants. Yeah. It's like telepathy kind of, or hypnotism. Maybe he is telling people to commit these crimes, but he's doing it as like God's voice in their head. Yeah. And people don't know what these voices are. They hear, but they assume if some celestial being is telling me to do something, that it's probably God. And I think kind of like bone, this has this like improvisational aspect to it where like, it starts off being this like police procedural about this like weird phenomenon and then it just shifts entirely into this other sci-fi fantasy movie that you did not expect based on that premise and just sort of like feels like it's making shit up as it goes along and just gets weirder and weirder until it ends. I liked it. I thought it was good. Probably my least favorite movie we're talking about today. Like I think maybe this is more geared towards your interests and tone than mine. I don't know. It's the thing that was disappointing about this movie for me is like I thought this premise is ripe for just a lot of cool shit, which actually it does when you start bringing in the aliens and the cabal (laughs) and, you know, him discovering that he's a product of a virgin birth and he goes to war with his brother. And I love all that stuff. I think the only thing missing in this movie was earlier. We were talking about that sharp witty dialogue that Cohen writes. And I, this movie was sort of lacking. I felt like the premise itself was really solid and there was a lot, a lot there, but the actual dialogue didn't quite do anything for me. I didn't think that it was particularly funny or clever. And that's sort of what I'm used to from watching his other movies. There's definitely very little humor here, if any, but I think the writing is really sharp. Like I really like, the um, sort of love triangle between his new wife and his old wife. There's some like really like deep hurt in there. Um, and it's kind of crazy. That the movie has room for that kind of like romantic love triangle in midst of all this other stuff. And then there's the, this other monologue from this lady about her alien abduction story that I think is like really compelling too. I think what's missing is the performance is just so drab. Uh, this guy, Tony Lobianco is delivering these really insane escalating uh, doubts of like faith and identity in this, like just nothing of a performance where like in bone and in Q, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, everyone's performances are matching the dialogue. They're like meeting the writing at it's like heightened level. And he's playing it almost like a Scorsese crisis of faith character. And it's just not compelling to watch in comparison so I think the dialogue's there. I just think the acting, the actor is just like really drab. Oh, and I guess I would add that I think the plot in this movie is one of the strongest. Just on paper, like I was so taken back. Like, where is this story going to go from one moment to the next? Like, from the last like forty minutes of this movie is batshit insane because <laughs> you really don't know where the hell is this story going. He goes and meets his brother, or you don't know he's his brother at the time, but goes and meet this guy down in the furnace and and then they like go to war and he causes the house to crumble and it's just from where the story starts to where it ends is like a really interesting plot i thought but yeah i i think you did kind of hit the nail on the head because in like in q which we're going to talk about next you have a Michael Moriarty performance, which is so insane and over the top. And it is like, so he good. It up and it's like, yeah, it's so fantastic. I do think the actor, I forgot his name already, but yeah, cause he's so boring. Tony Lobianco, but he's trying to play it straight. He's, like he's playing it like a Scorsese movie or like, um, what's that evil Ferrara film? Um, bad Lieutenant, bad Lieutenant. Yeah. yeah it's that kind of like seventies, New York crisis of faith. Catholic guilt kind of thing, which is funny coming from like a very Jewish writer, uh, Larry Cohen. And another thing too, like with the social commentary with bone, I I felt was like super strong and had a lot to say in this movie. I still thought it was interesting. I think I read something where Larry Cohen was just inspired by reading the Bible to make this movie (laughs) because he basically was like 
God is very violent. Oh yeah. Old Testament awful, God for sure. Yeah. He does awful vengeful things. And I, I was thinking a lot like about, you know, these people that hear voices and how do you know, like if you, like they keep bringing up Abraham killing his son. Like if you're Abraham and a voice is telling you to kill your son and you think it's God, then it's righteous. But if it's Satan, then it's wrong. But how can you know? It's just a voice in your head. And again, it's like these people think they're doing a righteous act because their faith tells them it has to be God when really it's some weird alien being that has nothing to do with our religion. So there's something to chew on there. I thought it had some interesting things to say, but it wasn't quite as like nuanced. And I don't think it had the depth of like that bone did. Yeah. For some reason I thought you would have been like way more into this one than me. No, I mean, I, I liked it a lot though. I'm not saying I didn't like it. Yeah. yeah I, I liked it too. I just, I, I really didn't think the social commentary or the commentary on religion was as thoughtful and nuanced as some other stuff I've seen from Larry Cohen. Yeah. It just has, I don't know. There's definitely something missing. It sucks that I feel like we have made it seem like this isn't a good no, it's movie. Good. And it is. It's totally worth watching, especially, again, to see how that plot progresses from where it starts to where it ends. But in many ways, it is a straightforward police procedural. He's just investigating. He is discovering things, and the plot thickens. But it didn't do much for me beyond beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate it as a tiny, budgeted movie with big ideas. Like, I'm always on board for that. Uh, I just wish the main guy wasn't so boring. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. So, cue the Winged Serpent from 1982. That was what you picked to talk about today. Yeah. What is that? What is cue the Wing? I mean, (laughs) I guess this is Cohen at his most B-movie in the set, like... This is your old school silly monster movie. It's like a kaiju, like King Kong or Godzilla. Or it's type like film. you know what you would have seen in the forties and fifties with like yeah, flying saucer man. I don't know, you There's know, whatever. This really good fifties um, monster movie called The Big Claw, and the monster looks almost exactly like this thing, but a little dinkier. Like it looks more like a vulture. Uh, how, how would you describe the the creature in Cue the Winged Serpent? Yeah, he's. A, He's vulture-like or like a bald chicken like or a goofy dragon. <laughs> goofy dragon. I I mean I thought the design for the character was fun. Yeah, I mean, you know it can be really gross and like horrific, but it can be like absolutely fucking adorable and like some close-up shots. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's animated in stop motion uh, and that like old Ray Harryhausen effect, which you know never ages poorly. Like it's always endearing to watch that. Yeah. And it actually gets in the action a, bit, a bunch. Like it picks people off of roofs. And the basic plot is there's this. What I cannot pronounce the full name of this creature. It's a real um, Mexican it's an Aztec, Aztec thing. Yeah. Yeah. Quinsenthal. Qu- but well, I really like the uh, tagline is like, don't worry about pronouncing its name. Q is all you can say before yeah. it kills you. <laughs> Yeah. So we don't have time to to uh, we'll just call it, pronunciation. We'll just call it Q, but there's this giant winged serpent that is just decapitating people and picking up scantily clad women off of rooftops. Like a hawk with like small dogs in the desert. Like it just kind of like swoops in, picks it up and leaves and that's it. And then it drips blood down on people below, which I've never seen in a monster movie before. Yeah. People are just like going about their business in like Times Square and get like a bucket of blood dropped on them. So there's this main plot of like this wing serpent thing. He has this nest with an egg and the Michael Moriarty character is this jewel thief who um, randomly discovers this thing and then he basically is trying to help the police like destroy it or take it down with it. And then there's a B plot about the sacrifices to the guy. And there's like some really good gore of like people oh, yeah. being flayed alive and stuff like that. Well, it's the same setup as God told me to right? It's like a pretty standard police procedural with right. David Carradine and Richard Roundtree of yep. shaft fame. Uh, they're two investigators looking into this cult that is summoning this Aztec demon. Right. The way they do that is they sacrifice people by flaying them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you see a lot of up close gore shots of like people's faces being peeled off like Turkey. It's really gnarly, but uh, yeah, it almost feels entirely separate from this giant bird. And creature. it's not really fleshed out. Exactly. It doesn't really <laughs> like a joke. Yeah. It doesn't really <laughs> matter, 
But um, that that's the basic premise. But the fun of this movie is a like like you talked about the creature is just fun to look at. But he's kind of like a side character. I think what we really need to talk about is Michael Moriarty, and his performance is riveting and it's method acting and he's obviously improvising he's just making shit up as he goes along he's fully embodied it's in like this jazz character. acting he's like improvising in this like jazz kind of well, way speaking of j- there's a scene where he's like scatting at a piano bar that's one of <laughs> the funniest things i've seen in any like Larry Cohen movie or any movie from he's that so time. so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> Wait, let me tell you this too. In yeah, the documentary, yeah. people present it like he's really good. It's like, yeah, Michael Moriarty's amazing. He puts on this great performance and he's like a real jazz guy. Like he, and we mo- put that in the movie. Like we showed him like playing his like art and it's fucking awful. <laughs> he's like <laughs> scatting and hitting these like minor notes that have nothing to do with each well, other. It, but he's trying to like sing the exact note that he's playing a lot when he's scatting like beep, beep, boop, beep, beep, boop. And I don't know if he's serious, but it plays like Tim and Eric, like anti-comedy now. And there's a scene later where he's running from someone's chasing him. And all of a sudden, for no reason whatsoever, the soundtrack drops out and they just pipe <laughs> in back his scatting <laughs> for the chase scene. Yeah. It's so good. Okay. So Bone, like everyone is doing the Michael Moriarty experience. Like this is my theory about Larry Cohen joints, yeah. or at least the three we watched today. In Bone... Everyone is on Michael Moriarty's level. Everyone's given this weird, inhuman, I have no idea what you're going to say or do next. And in, in this movie, you just have one guy running wild while everyone else is doing this sort of like standard B picture. And he's just a mad man. Which works really well, too. It's like every other person is the straight man. So he's really allowed to stand out. Yeah. And he does. In every scene he's in, he just like, you can't take your eyes off of him yeah it's like a great deranged nick cage performance like vampire's kiss or, or like wicker man or something like that there's another scene i love later in the film where he's negotiating the terms oh great scene because he basically like he knows where to find q and he's trying to get some money out of it a crazy amount of money watch this movie and really pay attention the piano bar scene and this scene to know what we're talking about with yeah. this performance it is so fun so I know you're talking about like social commentary earlier, like in relation to the other movies. If this has any, it's just about like pieces of shit, like this jewel thief getaway driver. He's a bad dude. Oh, he's he's terrible. And he's a junkie and he's a domestic abuser and he thinks he's an artist, even though he's a joke. In that boardroom scene, I think that's where it really comes to light. Like he has this one chance to be this like heroic savior. Uh, and instead, he takes this small crumb of power that's like landed into his lap and just abuses by it and extorts the city for like millions of dollars and like book rights and picture deals. That to me is really the heart of this film. Oh, it's yeah. not about the serpent because most of the screen time is dedicated to him and his character's arc is exactly that. Like someone that has no power and is at the bottom rung of society finally gets a little bit of that power and uses it in the worst way possible and has no idea what to do with it. It's crazy that like his girlfriend leaves him because of that, even though she stayed with him when he was like pathetic and small. The fact that he was a junkie who kept like falling back off the wagon or he like hit her a few times in his worst moments. Mm-hmm. That wasn't enough for her to leave him, but like seeing him abuse the power when he was no longer a pathetic creature and like had, you know, a moment to do something heroic and just like didn't have it in him. That's when she leaves him like, God, that is such good writing. Well, and it kind of has to be that way because a movie with such a small budget, you know, we can't have countless scenes of the winged serpent it has to be more focused on the human side of things. And I think that's what this movie gets right and why it's so smart. It realized like, okay, we can't put all our money in the effects. We just don't have it. So we're going to use this creature sparingly, you know, when we need to. But the real plot of the film is going to be the human element and this piece of shit character who has like, like you said, a chance to redeem himself and totally fails Biffs it <laughs> yeah and that that is actually like a super compelling story that you really don't see a lot of films going into 
And you can see in God Told Me To, like, how wrong that can go depending on the actor. Like, it's not like Michael Morality gets any more screen time than Tony Lobianco in the other film. It's just that he does so much more with it mm-hmm. and, like, turns it into this, like, incredibly compelling, like, character study. And I want to see more, too, because... Um Apparently, they worked together on a few films, oh, nice. Moriarty and Cohen, um, which I haven't seen. But yeah, that that's a duo that I think has something going for it. Okay. Before we like wrap up in yeah. a way, I need to tell you more production stories from this like documentary. Yeah. Um, so Larry Cohen was fired off of another producer's movie. It was like one of the few times when he was not you know, bankrolling his own script. He was like working on someone else's film. And when he was fired and in New York, he was angry, obviously, and decided to make this movie out of spite and just slapped it together very quickly. Just like wrote it in a like quick dash and then resolved that he was going to finish this movie before the movie he was fired from wrapped. Like from start to end, he was going to finish <laughs> this one just to do it. I love it. So yeah, he threw all these characters together, which is kind of probably why those Moriarty scenes and like David Carradine uh, squawking like a bird just feel mm. like very improv because it probably was like filmed on the fly. Yeah. One of the greater pieces of happenstance was that the Chrysler building was being worked on at the time. So you had men on scaffolds outside the Chrysler building already. Uh, and that's where the bird's nest is. So they could already film it with these like scaffolds on it. And they convinced the construction workers who were working on the building. Hey, you want to be in a movie and had them holding these fake guns uh, and, and shot them in the film. And then people down below didn't know that that was fake. Holy shit. And called the cops and the movie got shut down. I love how reckless he, like, I mean, it's horrible. I know it's horrible. It's unethical, but come on, you have to appreciate he has a vision and he's going to get it made. We have this like distance now too, where it's like, Oh, Cavalier, like it's the early eighties, but like, you know, years and years ago, this is like run and gun guerrilla filmmaking. It's, It's crazy. They got away with this. If someone did this now, they'd be like dragged through the media and probably rightfully so. But it is kind of charming in retrospect that they got away with it. And that the movie like came out and like is immortalized and is incredibly fun to watch and probably wouldn't be as good if they didn't have all that like Chrysler building access and all these other things. Well, I think too, it's like, I know he said a lot of his movies, obviously, you know, in New York City or at his home because you know, he didn't have a budget. So that's how you have to do it. But it makes it seem so much more authentic. It seems like real people on the streets because it was. Yeah, he grabbed and, some real reaction shots. Yeah, and it, it gives it this like vibrancy and like this real feeling behind it that you don't get in a lot of like bigger budget studio films. So, I mean, dude, Larry Cohen, love him. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I need to watch the It's Alive trilogy. I've seen the stuff, but like so long ago that I, I barely remember it. I do need to see It's Alive. I've heard that's supposedly one of his best ones, which I haven't seen yet. So. With a character design from Rick Baker, too. I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and probably like dozens and dozens of other titles. The guy did not stop. Like he just wrote his whole life at a very enviable rate. Like to be able to just come up with original ideas like this this fast. And they're they're good. Like yeah. I haven't seen a, a bad movie from him yet. Yeah, if we were like sounding super negative on God Told Me To, it's only like because the other two movies today were like Are really, so good. really good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just in comparison it was like the least exciting of the trio. But yeah, that's not really a stain upon it. <laughs> you know, he just happened to write really good movies as well. But yeah, just watch some Larry Cohen. I mean, he passed away this year, has a huge body of work that you should check out. And a lot of them are on Amazon and Shutter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're pretty easily accessible. In a couple weeks, we're going to do another Larry Cohen-esque episode. Uh, me and Brittany are going to talk about uh, Ready or Not, which just hit theaters this weekend. And... Because of that, we're going to do some like board game, children's game thrillers. Okay, uh, cool. So that's kind of like a high concept Larry Cohen episode. And I really think we should do a Jason Statham episode after that. Maybe we'll get more I'm down. That. Yeah. I told you, I'm a huge fan of Crank. Yeah. So I'll be down for That'd that. That'd be fun. And in the meantime, check us out. We post a new movie review every day on swampflix.com. And I'm also going to be guesting on that We Love to Watch episode about Dagon and... Uh, Dreams in the Witch House from Stuart Gordon that I talked about last episode. It finally should be out around the time you're hearing this one. So check out We Love to Watch. Check out Swampflex.com, and we'll see you all in a couple weeks. Bye, everybody.